Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 81st episode of the Truth Island podcast. When we think of the idea of punishment, there are perhaps two things that come to mind. The first being a punitive measure, which is meant to inflict some type of harm or discomfort upon a person that has committed a wrongful deed. This achieves two noticeable things. One, this brings a sense of peace and closure to the victim or the victim's family that now knows that the person who has acted against them is not living a life of luxury, but rather is suffering at a level that is commiserate to the degree that they have inflicted suffering upon the victim. Secondly, one might argue that a certain degree of suffering is sometimes required to get a person to reflect upon something wrong that they have committed, as an absence of suffering may not invoke the careful level of reflection and introspection that a person requires for them to fully come to terms with what they have done. The second element of punishment is to teach and instill new habits into the person that has committed an egregious act, so they will not repeat such actions or similar bad actions in the future. This is often known as the process of rehabilitation, which may encompass everything from rewiring someone's moral code to giving them practical job skills and education so that they are better prepared to reenter the society at a more functional standing. The American justice system is riddled with flaws, with some arguing that the system at times is far too punitive and that it does a good job of handing out long sentences and creating a great deal of suffering, but does not offer enough rehabilitation services. Others may argue that if a punishment is not strong enough, it will cease to act as a deterrent and lead to much higher levels of crime. I am once again joined by Luke, who is going to help me find out exactly where we should draw the line on just how severe and where exactly rehab should begin. Luke, take it away. Thanks for having me again, Aaron. So obviously when we have, when we talk about, especially with like there, there's retributive justice, which is what we, what you mentioned in the intro where we, a person, individual commits a crime, let's say, let's make it pretty extreme. Let's say like murder. And then we find that they get caught, the evidence points to them, they get convicted. And then this is kind of where the sentence is where we find, uh, I guess you could say the term justice sort of implemented here. Um, some states do still have uh, the death penalty legalized. So there will be some states and even, you know, back in, I guess you could say the history, we'd have public, we used to have public executions, especially in Europe. Over here in the States, there, there were examples of like the electric chair or lethal injection. Slowly, we went moments where things have been moved from, I guess, like painful to painless, quote unquote. But with that, it, we start to muddle the lines of, especially with the difference between retributive justice and also rehabilitation, we start to muddle the lines a bit like, of where um, where justice occurs and how does one define justice in either of these situations? Because with retributive justice, we have the instance of, well, maybe ending the criminal's life won't say if like the if the murder was against a person's family, then ending the criminal's life won't bring back the the victim. It won't, it can bring in maybe like a momentary joy of like, oh, he will never murder again, or he won't commit such a heinous crime ever again, and maybe hurt another family. But one can make the argument that to the, or the family, or maybe someone 
other person that's close to the family or just another individual, another party can make the argument that, well, murdering the murder, well, it's via capital punishment, won't actually bring back the individual that he murdered. It will only be as far as like a pleasure, I guess you could say pleasure activism or pleasure justice or pleasure from the justice, the act of retributive justice only lasts for so long because that individual still has been murdered. They no longer here. Now we'll get to the um the the death penalty uh later in the show. I'm wondering, like I, I agree with you that I think that typically when we thought about justice, especially in the case of murder, it was like an eye for an eye, like Hammurabi's code type of ordeal. And I think that um, capital punishment and killing is definitely the ultimate form of retribution justice, right? Because a dead person doesn't come back and then make right or make amends and so forth. And I can kind of see, I, I can kind of see this shift of where we, we as human beings, right? Like, like, you know, God forbid somebody murdered someone that you loved. I feel like as saintly and as, as forgiving as we all want to be, it's just not really possible. Like I think in order for us to sleep well at night, we need to know that the person that has committed the atrocity is suffering to some degree. And this is just a, a, a fact about our human nature. Now, where we have to kind of really think about this a lot is, are we going to sleep better at night if the person that killed our loved one is also then killed? Is that, does that give us the best sleep at night? Or knowing that they are kind of in a small cell with like, you know, in not the best conditions, does that make us feel? Is that good enough? Is that, is that, is that enough? And then I, I think we have to also ask for ourselves, like, how, how long do they need to be quote unquote suffering in that situation for us to feel as if that equates the worth of the loved one that was removed from our life? Right. And I think the important word that you, that you ended off there was like the worth as like specifically like worth as human beings, because some, I would, I would point out that maybe some people would argue that once a person has committed, like since we're using, again, murder of a loved one as an example, that maybe that once someone goes to that point and, does, and murders one of our loved ones, then their worth as a human being, just generally publicly speaking, uh, a lot of times we would see them as less than because a human they would see like as a human you would be like you know someone who just works in society etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but once the murder is committed you commit almost an animalistic act like people would argue that you would commit you committed an animalistic act against someone else therefore you will be treated as such there and you have you know certain like if you're going to be imprisoned for however number of years like if it's 70 to life they have that very like vague numbers between i'm not entirely sure how they come up with these numbers it's like oh just 70 to life it's like, okay how does this where does a 70 draw the line but you take away a lot of their rights or like you could say their freedoms like they're they now have scheduled foods they live in a cell they're um what do you call it restrooms and their little quote-unquote uh, exercise or free time is uh, is limited. Their contact with the outside world, if they're incarcerated, is also limited as well. So it's kind of it, a lot of this begs the question of: Well, 
do we continue to see the perpetrator in this sense still human? Um, and I think like that's a very important question, especially, and that's, again, that's where the whole rehabilitation comes in uh, along with ethically and morally as well. I, I want to kind of jump in here and, and say one, one thing that I find that is starting to become a little bit perverse about our criminal justice system, and maybe there's a few people that will disagree with me, is that sometimes we have drug charges or financial crimes that get stiffer sentences than murder. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's like totally happening out there, but I think we as a society need to be very, very, very clear that murder is probably the worst thing that you can do, especially if it's done in a unprovoked, um, non like self-defense type way, because when you really think about it, when you think of property, even if that property cannot be fully repaid and, and full restitution is completely impossible, you're actually removing consciousness from a human being when you commit murder. You're actually, you're actually taking away something that can never be brought back and you're removing a person's consciousness, their ability to think, their ability to love, their ability to laugh. All of that has now been taken away and by proxy, the family has also has lost that person's mind and has lost whatever insights and, and humanity has lost their human, their insights if they were to, to go on and do some great service for the world. And maybe, maybe it is fair to say that there needs to be like, I don't, yeah, I'm just going to throw a number out there, maybe at least 10 years of incarceration for murder, because there needs to be at least 10 years in which the person who committed the murder is no longer seen as human as like their consciousness in a way has also kind of been removed for 10 years, you know, and because I, I, I can't see society functioning in a way where murder, the absolute removal of consciousness, you know, is a five year stint or something to me that just doesn't, I, I I'm having difficulty processing that. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it is a difficult um, thing to process, especially when uh, over here in, especially over here in California, where we've had cases of where a, a an actual like violent rape was had a less, a lesser sentence than a minor drug charge. Um, I think it was like six months of I guess six months on parole and community and then with like a few months of community service because the judge was like he's a quote-unquote good kid and doing giving him the sentence that we normally give to perpetrators of violent rape would ruin his career again quote-unquote uh while we're sitting here and giving people who have you know minor possession of of whatever drug usually it's marijuana years upon years of a prison sentence it's like where's the it's like how was that uh what do you call it how can as you could say like how is that to put it lightly how is that justice and it's it's very it's kind of like a difficult plane to traverse the thing also about uh i would say the drug charges here is that in that instance, I guess you could call the state the victim of, of you in possession of those drugs. I mean, now, if you did something bad, if you stole money or something to buy drugs, well, then that there's obviously a clear victim in, in that in that in, in that happenstance, right? And let's let's distinguish those cases. Um, but if it's just a pure like possession thing, in that case, the injured party is the state, and the state is what seeks retribution and 
the state doesn't really have like emotions. It doesn't really, the, the state doesn't need to sleep well at night. You know what I mean? It doesn't need to like get into yeah. its warm covers and be like, ah, that drug person is in jail, right? It doesn't have, it doesn't yeah. have that, <laughs> that, that same biological urge for that. So I think that, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole, like, should drugs be a crime and all this other stuff, but we definitely need to ex- distinguish between crimes that have victims and crime. I'm not saying that drug possession is a victimless crime, but it doesn't have a corporeal body victim that, that is, 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 is at a loss and can't sleep at night because somebody who has uh, created harm is set free in, into the society and into the worth. And I think that's, that's exactly what happens. Like if you're a mom and your son was murdered, you, to, in order for that mother to sleep well for an, a multitude of reasons, one, she doesn't want anyone else to get murdered by this guy. But if that mother found that the murderer of her son was out in Hawaii drinking pina coladas, there's something fundamentally that would break that mother to pieces. Like that mother would be absolutely destroyed if, if the murderer of her son was out there in Hawaii having a grand old time because it, we we as, as as human beings need a a karmic sense of justice in order to find cohesion in the world. And if if that is disrupted way too much, I don't think that we can actually function as human beings. I don't think I don't even think it's possible. Yeah, and on that, it's it's, it's definitely hard when like you know you given the example that you gave, like with the mother, like how if the if the perpetrator is you know, has all these freedoms that, and it kind of comes down like, you know, when you, when you murder someone, you strip them away of your freedoms, or when you harm someone, you strip them of a specific freedom. Uh, In that sense, by him, or, you know, by the perpetrator being free and experiencing these, uh, you know, this luxury freedom, she is still being stripped of this sense of freedom freedom to be at peace freedom to feel that peace and that uh closure almost that you know her her you know loved one was taken away from her and i think that there there's this there's a fine line between like okay how can we measure how can we measure the adequate sentence for that justice to occur to the perpetrator it's just like however many years would be you know, stripping them of their freedoms uh, to show, teach them a lesson or whatever, just be like, okay, this amount of years, you're going to experience this. You're going to fuck, you're going to hate it. But like, like you kind of have to, because you stripped another individual of their freedom and also their loved ones of their freedoms as well. It's not just one person's freedom of living. Also the other loved ones, individual freedoms of Love, uh, you know, loving that person, caring for that person, and feeling at peace with that person as well. And then maybe afterwards, there could be a there could be a point of time where you kind of test, see, like, okay, has this person sort of learned what they've done at all? Are they still just, you know, they just don't care? You know, there are individuals who just don't care. They just kind of did it. Maybe there's individuals who feel some kind of remorse. It it it's so um, the term would be subjective that it's it's difficult to put down like a concrete stamp of like, this is how we deal with this. And then on this case, this is how we deal with this. It does. Again, it's difficult. What a line to draw. I, I actually like the, the, that you just used the word line because that's exactly the same word that Aristotle uses. And in Aristotle's world, when some kind of 
injustice is committed. Imagine you have a perfect line and you, Luke, have 50% of this line and I control 50% of the line, right? So it's like completely evenly divided in half. Let's say you do something wrong to me, right? You steal $1,000 from me and now you control 65% of that line and now I, I control less of it, right? Justice is when that line is made equal again, according to Aristotle. So basically we, we, we have to return to a state of equilibrium where each of us controls 50% of that line. So a mom has a child and that child is removed. We have to now equate in years, how many years have to elapse of that person incarcerated in prison before that line is made whole again. And it is made like 50% again for each party involved. And this varies from, from, from person to person. There might be one mother who forgives the perpetrator after five years of incarceration. There might be another mother who forgives after 10 years. And there might be a mom who's like, I'm never forgiving that bastard, you know? And then like, we have to deal with that. The state then has to come in and say, okay, you're, you're, both of you guys are biased, right? So the person who has committed the atrocious act or the murder is biased because they want the least amount of punishment as humanly possible. And the person who has been wronged wants the maximum, typically, right? I mean, I, I've heard instances where this is only, not always the case, but typically they want the maximum possible sentence. So now the state has to like basically determine how many years is a human life. And, and that, that needs to be something that we need, we need, we as a society need to kind of wrap our hands around. And I, I gave the number 10 years, but then I'm thinking in my head, well, what about involuntary manslaughter? Like, let's say you accidentally hit somebody with your car or something like that. Is that quite worth 10 years because it was an accident, you know? So like it, it does, it does get very, very, very confusing, but I would say deliberative murder, like murder that is actually the, the act was not an accident and was caused. I can't see that being less than 10 years. Yeah. And it's funny that you bring up Aristotle's whole example of with the line, because there's, there was actually a, um, there's actually a philosopher who I think John Rawls, American philosopher who wrote that and defined justice as justice as fairness. And then um, he actually does have a quote here that says um, where he, he writes like any inequalities in a social system should favor the least well off because this leads the playing this levels the playing field of society. So in this case, when we're talking about specifically um, in a criminal justice system, then the to to have that line drawn, then we have to equate that line and then favor as you said. There's biases. We have to favor the one who was who is the least well off and this will be the case of the mother who lost her loved one to a you know a terrible terrible crime and thus using that as a using that as sort of a defining point putting a i guess you say a punishment on the perpetrator if that makes sense i don't know if i fully agree with his interpretation because it's a very need-based justice because is, what if this mother is being like i want I, I want 75 years i want 50 years you know like i'm wondering because yeah and and because i'm, I'm wondering because every mother is different and every mother has a could could demand more or less of the state so i think that the state has to just ask itself 
what is the right punishment to make to make it to, to basically correct this 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 imbalance, right? And and I, when we think of the um, when you go in front of a courthouse, you have you know Lady Justice blindfolded holding those two balancing scales, right? Mm-hmm. And then like that that imagery is there of like it, it's not that the mother is in the disadvantaged position and she deserves more justice. I think it's just a question of like what how 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 can we all as a society say hey you got you got your retribution from that person this person is spending the next 10 15 years and 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 maybe it, it maybe circumstance matters quite a bit maybe that person did a lot of bad stuff leading up to the murder and so forth and that has to kind of be taken in, in into that equation but i i think that the need I think when all punishments are dealt out, we need to first analyze how many years are going towards the retribution process and then figure out what part of the sentence is um, going into the rehab process. And I think maybe maybe your time in jail should actually be doled out in that way where you actually spend some time in prison where it's just you're actually serving out the punishment element of your sentence like okay your first five years in prison is strictly punishment we're not really teaching you anything you're just here to really reflect and to really really allow the victim to kind of have have their closure and then the next five years of your sentence is now the rehabilitation element of of your sentence how does that sound yeah i mean that sounds um, i mean in a perfect world that would probably be <laughs> in a that would probably be like one of the one of the be- better if not the best option where we would have that sense of closure first and then we remove remove on to like because could take the re-education and the rehabilitation of the perpetrator but again that would be in like a perfect world uh but then we also have um we also have the we kind of run into the sort of the different issues that kind of get thrown into the equation here it's like well what if the you know what if the perpetrator pleads uh, quote like i think it's like pleads insanity or they do there were some may perhaps some underlying uh, what do you call mental health issues and it's okay so then how do we respond how do we respond to that you know it's very like again, in a perfect world, we would want it to be like a cut and dry, but also it's also situational and it's circumstantial of both of the individual. And I think that's what makes this so difficult where it's like, we don't have a, we don't have like a concrete blanket, as you say, foundation to start off with every single, like it can be, it can be sort of like the main thing is like, okay, murder of someone. But then there's these all these little intricacies that follow here. And even as you said, like, okay, what if the perpetrator had prior like small crimes or whatever tacked onto that, then that may add on to the general sentence as well. It's like, okay, well, the murder sentence this much, but you also had all this stuff within the last like five years, burglary, et cetera, you know, mugging. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then that gets add, added on to that, you know, and that kind of changes the um, the playing ground, if that makes sense. To, uh... Okay, now, now I love what you're saying. I kind of am going to throw an answer out here, and I'm sure there's some like law professor who's laughing at me, I mean, like, you're a ridiculous man. Here, 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 <laughs> I think they're laughing at both of us. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, here's, here's my idea on this. I think that the sentence itself 
should be static in, in on the on the retribution end, regardless of your mental state, regardless of your priors or whatever. So there's a retribution justice. And let's just say that retribution sentence is five, 10 years or whatever it is. That's the retribution end of the stick. However, the rehab element of your sentence then you're actually putting in all of these other variables of like, well, we tried, you know, rehabilitating this person before it didn't quite work. So this time we're going to have to do it for longer or, Hey, it looks like this person has some severe chronic uh, mental issues and so forth. They have like full blown schizophrenia and all this other stuff. That rehab sentence is going to be a lot more longer and a lot more, drawn out. And I would say in the case of like schizophrenia or something, you don't want to wait like five years before you're like, okay, we can't treat you for your schizophrenia until five years have elapsed. And, and now, now we're in the rehab version of the, ju- of, of, of the sentence. But what I am saying though, is that I think the, the factors that you just described, like, um, is this your first time on the carousel and do you have mental illness? That can kind of be a part of the judge's justification for the rehab element of the sentence. So the the judge has the static kind of like, okay, this is the basic retribution that we're taking so that mom over here can sleep well at night. And now your sentence is is being further elongated as a result of all of the other variables that you just described. Yeah, no, and then that definitely makes sense. So it's like we have one side that's uh, concrete and one side that's stable. And then the aftermath, I guess in this case, the rehabilitation, that part fluctuates depending on the state. And again, all, a lot of this is like in a perfect world. <laughs> but I think like the there runs and obviously there's going to be major criticisms of of any of this. And I can I can already think of like, I guess you could say like the ethical criticism of just retribution, retributive justice in general where it's just like, regardless of crime, they're still human. It's an, it's an inherent right that they still hold certain freedoms. And, but we can't like completely strip away freedoms. We have to still give them freedoms that are limited, et cetera, et cetera, within retributive justice, you know? So it's, I'm, I'm willing to bet there's probably like some criminal justice major or like someone, like, as you said, like a law professor just sitting here, just like furiously taking notes and maybe writing an angry letter or something like that. But um, I don't think they're taking notes, man. They're not giving us the time of day, but <laughs> <laughs> that's giving ourselves but, uh, way too much credit. <laughs> yeah. 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 But um, what I, what I think it is, is that first off, I, I look, no cruel and unusual punishment. That's unnecessary. Like, we don't need to be, we don't need to bring back the rack or any of these other like yeah. crazy, crazy things. And I think, I, I think like you're in prison. Are you entitled to like some square meals a day? Sure. Absolutely. Um, are you required to an hour or two of out, outside yard time? Okay, fine. Fair enough. Um, I, I, I think all prisoners should be entitled to unlimited books. I think that that, that is, I think that kind of like I think that if you are in solitary confinement and you don't have a book to read, you will go crazy. I absolutely do, and I do feel like that is a, a form of cruel and unusual punishment. And having somebody read a book that will probably help their mental state also kind of touches upon the rehab element of this as well. And the again, the idea is that they 
they are not at Applebee's having a good time. Like that's the most important element in all of this. They've got a cell. They, they can do some push-ups there, some sit-ups, and they can read lots of books and they get their three square meals a day and maybe a cup of tea or whatever. But it's, it's not, the idea is that their time in prison is not as joyful and as beneficial as life on the outside would be even even if they were like living in poverty on the outside the prison life should not necessarily be as wondrous as as, as living on the outside and enjoy yeah it shouldn't be better than what's on the outside it should be a form of like i guess like limitations set on the freedoms not not completely strip the freedoms but more of like i guess you could say like i, I one I guess a humanitarian ethically would say like it would just limit the freedoms down to the basic human level where you're still human. You're not an animal. You're not being treated as an animal. You're still human, but those human freedoms and those human rights have been limited to reflect that, Hey, there's a difference between out there and also in here. Uh, precisely right. Um, the only, the only caveat will be a uh, capital punishment, like death penalty. Exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. get there. We'll get there in a yeah. moment, but we'll definitely get there in a moment. Um, but yes, while you are in that physical cell, you are not treated like cattle. Like I think that that, 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 that is a fair thing to say that you still afforded food, a bed to sleep on, some books to read. It just outside of that, it's just really bare levels of stimulation. Um, some people think that solitary confinement is more on the the animal side of it, but I think s small doses of solitary confinement might be needed to protect the. Pr Sometimes it's used to protect the prisoner from other prisoners. Sometimes it's uh, used to protect other prisoners from that prisoner, and sometimes like that, like there, like even within the prison system, there has to be a further layer of punishment. Mm -hmm. And how long somebody should spend in solitary confinement? You know, I, I don't. I don't think it's right to spend to send someone to five years in solitary. I think that's pretty egregious, unless they're consistently hurting other people upon being released from solitary. I think that that might be yeah. an issue in itself. Um, but yeah, there should definitely be constraints and there should be time limits on how long a person can spend in solitary at any given moment. That can, I believe that that can lead to an excess it'll lead to one of two things enlightenment or an existential crisis whichever comes first <laughs> yeah whichever comes first and maybe one will lead to the other <laughs> yeah 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 um so I, I i think that 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 is fair to say okay now we're getting to the rehabilitation element of justice okay um i would say education ged college credits vocational all that stuff is great stuff you know make sure especially if it's a crime that was robbery like robbery was probably committed as a result of a lack of skills and a lack of being able to afford you know unable to obtain a job in the workplace and then that makes perfect sense that a skilled more educated worker i also think that like all of these things about like um you know asking somebody you know they're they're um if, if they're a felon or whatever and they can't get a job i think that that also creates a nasty feedback loop where it's like you've 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 paid your debt to society you should be able to get a job yeah there's a huge gap on your resume or whatever but nonetheless like i i think 
there, there should, that shouldn't be prohibitive towards getting a job because it just, it makes it, it just creates an unnecessary feedback loop where, oh, I can't get a job. Now I have to go back to robbing people. And just from a logical standpoint, it just does not help. Yeah, no, definitely. I would have to agree with that, especially, I mean, if we're looking at, I mean, if we take a step back and look at a, you know, the prison, a lot of prison systems as a prison industrial complex where a lot of historically there were, I mean, given the times that we live in now within these last few months with um, racial injustices, one thing that I've been on one specific, what do you call it? uh, Book that I've been reading is actually Angela Davis's, um, I guess you could say treatise on if prisons are obsolete, trying to present the argument whether the whether the prison system needs to be broken down completely and whether we'll whether we have to reform it, whether or not, you know, we'll get there when we get there. But one of the one of the biggest things is that the is when we have the, I guess you say in that sense, like society, when a person robs a store for basic needs, you know, because they can't get a job, there was something happened, like say, um, they have a little, I guess you could say, a little mark or like a tick on them that says like, hey, this person committed like a petty theft or like a possession in the past. And it's, you know, they're unable to get a job. They're unable to have something to support themselves or if they have family. And then that's just a continuous cycle that, that perpetuates itself. It's just like, well, then in this case, who's failed who? Right. Yes. uh, Yeah. You know, I think if I remember it was either Aquinas, I'm trying to remember if it might've been Aquinas who wrote saying that if, if a per individual, I might be getting this wrong because I'm just trying to remember a college uh, course here. But like, I think it might have been Aquinas who wrote that if an individual steals a, you know, a piece of bread or takes more, takes a little bit more of a ration than, than what he can get or than what he's normally provided because he physically cannot support him or himself or his family, then in that case, the state has failed the, uh, failed the individual in providing that person with a with the means or the methods to build himself a better life. If that makes sense. Yes, we do have to be a little careful here because I, I think that necessarily like stealing like the latest pair of sneakers is a lot different than stealing bread. So we have to be. That's one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Needs, yeah it has phase. to be. It has to literally be like I'm starving to death. Now, one could argue that food stamps and and other kind of welfare provisions should be enough for basic subsidence. I I don't want to necessarily go down that rabbit hole. But yes, I I think that in terms of like having that mark or having that scarlet letter where the where the um, the the ex felon has to say, yeah, I'm a criminal, and then can't get a job, and just essentially cannot ever rent a place or can never find like a a proper shelter to live in. That's going to create that that kind of aligns with what Aquinas is saying that we have now society has failed because we've created a feedback loop where they're unable to now uh, fish for themselves. Like it's that saying, like, don't, don't give a man a fish, teach a man how to fish. And basically if you have that mark, you're basically taking the fishing rod and throwing it in the garbage can and being like, well, we're, we're putting, we're punishing you so much that you can't even catch a fish at this point. And that's, that's, yeah, we're like, we won't even give you the right to use the fishing rod. Like you're just going to have to use your hands. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, bud. No, that's, that's man. Agreed, man. That's way too extreme. Okay. 
in the rehabilitation process, you know, skills, all that good stuff. Now, here's where we're going to get some, some, uh, some murky territory. One might argue that you can have all the skills in the world. You can have all of the uh, training that you need, and you can go get a job on the outside world. However, if there hasn't been a fundamental correcting of one's morals, the crime is still going to happen in the future. So I can be a guy, I can be well-trained. I know like they taught me JavaScript or something like that when I was in prison. And now I can get a job on the outside as a coder or whatever it is, right? I got the skills. However, if my fundamental moral framework has not been corrected, I am still going to commit crimes. How does that sit with you, Luke? Do you think that that's also necessary? It would seem that it's almost like kind of like a, well, yes, but also no. And I want to try to, hopefully I can try to explain it um, as well as I'm trying to think as I go here, where like, yes, if they committed, the yes part is like, well, if they committed a, you know, a crime, then you have to instill specific, you know, specific morals, like, okay, if it's theft, then just like, okay, well, you know, stealing is wrong, because you are violating another person's freedom of their ownership of that, uh, you know, of that item, um, whether it's bread, or <laughs> it's a new pair of sneakers. Specifically, I mean, I guess you could say like, in a, in a store, you know, that the, if you stole all the bread, you know, you are violating not only the store owner's right to provide such goods to, you know, people who need or who buy the bread, you're also violating the right of uh, the consumer or the customer to purchase said bread for themselves or their family, you know, and to kind of instill like, hey, that's wrong because X, Y, Z, you are violating their right to have such good or their need in this case. But the the murky part is, I think what I lot of see working in a bookstore where we do send um, uh, magazines and books to um, state prisons, specifically um, specifically the one in Los Angeles over here, is the is sort of the um, the religious side. Being religious myself, I'm always I've tried to be a bit more, I can say, conscious of when religious abuse for lack of better terms happens. There is a prison in California. I can't remember the name. It is not in Los Angeles County. It's somewhere, I think it's somewhere out East from here where they only, and like literally like on the guideline sheet, they only allow paperback Bibles of a specific translation, nothing else. And it, it kind of shows like, well, you know, reading is reading as a form of rehabilitation and education is very important. It's, um, you know, reading different ideas and different per perspectives is very important in this sense. But when you're limiting that perspective to such a strict, strict religious code to the point where, you know, it, it could be like, it could be dogmatic in that sense. It's kind of when the, the water start to like, the line starts to blur and I kind of have to draw the line of just like, well, you can't just have you can't just have a single religious text be allowed. You need to open that up. You need to allow for more, a little bit more freedom in what they can and can't consume. Because in other other prisons, like okay, no gun or drug or like uh, gang paraphernalia um, or content like that that may stir up like that. Okay, I kind of see how that is understandable because you don't want to incite um, any. Well, I guess you could say, for lack of better terms, um, riots or whatever, and that those images. But to keep it down to like, okay, you're only going to be 
you're all, you're one book and one book you get for the entire year is just the Bible. There you go. Like that just seems, that just seems wrong, you know, and so you're have, limiting that moral framework. So I have a few comments I want to make here. Uh, one, I don't know how that's not a lawsuit because I'm sure that there's been Jews and Muslims and, and people of other faiths that have been incarcerated and demand, you know, a, a copy of the Torah or a copy of the Quran for, for them to seek rehabilitation through those texts. So I, I don't, I have no idea how I, I see a potential lawsuit yeah. coming with that down the line, you know, because the state is kind of imposing one, it's basically favoring one form of religion over others, which I, I see that. I see, I see, I see that hopefully, hopefully, hopefully yeah. being corrected soon. Now, who I'm really kind of, you know, uh, thinking about in this situation is also our atheist friends, because the atheists are going to be like, come on, man, you can't, you can't demand that someone is a good Christian or Jew before they get out of prison. Like, that's not right. You're, you're forcing somebody to accept that there is a God and you are forcing them to accept biblical canon before they can get out of prison. You can't do that. Like you have the right to be an atheist and get out of prison. And I, you know, I'm inclined to agree with that. Here's, here's my compromise to that situation. What they need to start doing in these prisons is start developing curriculum that first identifies what your native religion is. And, and if you still subscribe to those principles, they'll ask you, are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? Are you Buddhist? What, what are you? And then there's a track that you can follow for that specific religion. Now, in the case of our atheist criminals, what I actually propose is I think that there needs to be a philosophical curriculum. Okay. If you're an atheist, then there has to be a canon of philosophical text. Perhaps it's the ancient Greeks that perhaps it's Aristotle, like where, where I even mentioned like the, the idea of the line, mm -hmm. for example. So there needs to actually be a, another set of curriculum that's based on philosophy for the atheist to read. So that the atheist now has a moral code that they can abide by upon leaving that prison. And again, there could be an, well, they don't believe in God, but I'm like, okay, can't force someone to believe in God if they really don't want to. Like, exactly. It's just, not yeah. it's, just, it's just not possible. However, there needs to be a very, what I would say, logic-based moral system grounded in philosophy that the atheist criminal is being provided with so that when they go out into the larger society, they now have a logical moral framework in which to judge and evaluate their their systems. And of course, you know, these, these philosophical texts are very dense and read by, you know, people with graduate degrees. So I think the state has to then come in and take Aristotle and, and take Nietzsche and actually create a, a prison friendly version of this curriculum for, for the atheist prisoner to read so that you have every prisoner leaves prison with some form of moral framework that they now can recite and be tested upon that they now carry with upon, upon leaving prison. How does that sound, Luke? Yeah. I mean, that sounds, you know, it sounds like a pretty, like, you know, a really good compromise in that, in that case, I would almost, I would even point out or, you know, what's the word I'm looking for. I would even add on to that to maybe we can allow them to sort of choose, you know, if, like they can choose between religious texts and philosophical texts uh, that have been, um, I guess you could say condensed, whether it's in like, and they'll hold classes or something like that in that sense to help uh, understand these, like um, who knows, maybe someone who has gone through such, 
um, such rehabilitation will now start reciting Kantian ethics where it's all, it's all duty based. Where it's like my duty is now to not just myself, but also my duty as a citizen to other people. Or it could be from Aristotle with the Nicomachean ethics where it's more teleological. It's like, okay, what is my goal now? Now that I am out, what is my goal now to both better myself, but also to help better I guess you could say society in that sense. And I think having that freedom to be able to choose between the texts, like, you know, who knows, maybe someone might look at a, might look at the Torah or the Bible or even the Buddhist text and take, and take almost pragmatically take the, you could say moral codes from there and kind of see like, okay, I like this part. Now let's see what happens if I kind of um, turn this part with, combine this part with this part and then see where I can go from there. And if, you know, if the equation doesn't seem to fit right, then we go, okay, maybe let's try again. Um, it allows that freedom to pick and choose to experiment, you know? I, I actually see that, like, I think the answer to, the, to this problem is almost a liberal arts education in morals and ethics in prison. I think that's actually the answer. And I like the idea that you suggested because let's just like I, I mentioned a previous podcast that I was uh, born Jewish, but I actually mm -hmm. read quite a bit of Buddhist texts as well. Now, if I'm in prison and I choose just the Jewish route, uh, you know, route to redemption, right? I'm missing out on the Buddhist canon. You know what I mean? So I'm actually missing right. out on that canon of wisdom that could be beneficial. So I actually like this idea that it's a hybrid elective system where the prisoner, you know, um, for a semester or for five months has the option of choosing. They could go all Jewish text. They could go all Christian text, all Buddhist text, all philosophical text. I even like this idea that you're mentioning that there's a, a core curriculum here where they can actually take one Buddhist class in ethics and then take a Greek class in ethics and, and then and then have a very rich tapestry of, of moral and duty. And I just let, I love this idea of, of, of prisoners coming out of jail with an understanding of Kant. I think there's, there's something yeah. like when you said that, that, that was like, yes, like that, that's exactly like, it's just not an option to send people out into the world without a moral system. I think that if they, if, and they, if they have to believe in it somehow, and there has to be some kind of test almost if, if they believe in the moral system before, before, leaving um yeah. awesome i you know yes i'm waiting for the nobel peace prize guys we should both <laughs> of us we need to we, you know okay now we need to get to some of the 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 most controversial elements of what we're going to discuss here and we need to talk about the idea of life imprisonment and we need to talk about the idea of the death penalty and i think in both of these instances death penalty and life imprisonment the system and society as you know as a whole is basically stipulating that there are certain and this is what i think the question is beyond all this there are certain individuals in our society that are incorrigible and they can never ever be fixed and the only way to do it the incorrigible individual is to either execute them or to leave them in prison forever where they are no longer a harm for society. So I think we can actually answer the question, Luke, of whether we should have death penalty and life imprisonment if we can first answer the question of, is there such a thing as the incorrigible prisoner? That's such a hard, that's a, it's a very hard, uh, this is going to be super controversial as, as you mentioned. It's because I know there's certain philosophers who believe that, like, okay, so when when you grow up growing up in a sort of like a 
evangelical Christian background, there's the idea of total depravity where it's just like human beings are inherently sinful, you know, inherently uh, of sin. Therefore you need Jesus. <laughs> it's basically the, that equation, just like humans, humans, bad and sinful. You need Jesus. Then there's also individuals like, um, I'm pretty sure it was Kant who mentioned that no humans are, you know, they're good. We're inherently good. Um, Cause that kind of goes into the idea of just like, how are babies, you know, this, the most innocent being in this world, how is that inherent? How are they inherently sinful? You know, they don't have the cognitive ability to, you know, determine from what's sin and what isn't, you know, if we're going to use that language still. Um, so he's like, no, it kind of depends on, you know, how they grow up, what ideas they've been exposed to as, um, as they're growing up. So I think the hard part is what, at what level do they show at what level does the perpetrator or in this case, the criminal show that they are unredemptive or incordial? Uh, I think the one person that comes into mind is the, is Charles Manson and the Manson family. Very popular. I mean, like if you, I mean, if you live in California, that's kind of like the, one of the biggest um, ones over here, or even someone like uh, they just had the Netflix documentary with, um, with uh, what's his name? Zach Efron, Ted Bundy you know, someone like that, who's so, who can play off this idea of being a normal uh, person, like who's lives in society, has a family, but then also has this other side to them that just is just ruthless and remorseless. And even to the point is so arrogant enough to even represent himself in court and say like, no, like I'm innocent and believes himself to be innocent and argues for himself that he is innocent. You know, it's, it's a, difficult line and then maybe that line can get drawn with perhaps some especially with like the cat in the sense of capital punishment we're talking here life in prison it feels like it, de it depends on if we're going to use mathematically like how you're saying like okay a human life how can we measure that okay maybe it's like 10 years for murder like 10 years for murder and then however much left is rehabilitation if that is done over and over and over again it's a repeated occurrence then maybe that kind of stacks on if we're going to speak mathematically of course that stacks on enough to the point where it's like okay you you, you kind of haven't really learned your lesson here you're you're still doing the same thing over and over again. It's you're going to have to just spend your time in here for the rest of your life. But then, and then there's obviously going to people who think that, no, they deserve the death penalty. They deserve to be hanged, electric chair, lethal injection. There's been, um, I took a course in bioethics where we're talking about capital punishment or uh, euthanization. Um, and the argument was like, there's been people who try to, try to push for this idea of like a 100% painless execution. But the matter of fact is, or 100% uh, suffering less execution, but that doesn't exist regardless, because even with lethal injection, you're going to feel whether it's that instant, whether the difference between electric chair, where it's about like a minute, 25 seconds to a minute, however long it is to lethal injection, where it's maybe a split second, the human psyche still feels that, pain or that suffering in that moment so it, it's very much like the scales kind of go up and down in this case you know yeah so i'm thinking i'm thinking about our our you know and, and what what's kind of good about this situation is that your ted bundy's and your charles manson's are few and far between they're, they're not they're definitely not representative of 
the average prisoner, let alone the average prisoner that has committed murder, right? Like, exactly. Like, 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 you know, the average murder, uh, the average murderer probably does feel a huge level of remorse. So we're, we're dealing with a very small um, subset of the population. Now, we can't, now here's the thing though, like if we say that murder is 10 years, we can't just like let five people get killed and be like, all right, I guess you're at 50 years now. Like, I don't think exactly. it's right. Like, we can't yeah. just like sacrifice like <laughs> four. Problem. We yeah. can't, we can't just sacrifice four additional people and let that sentence stack up. So I, I think like we have to kind of figure these things out. I think that this is kind of where, you know, psycho psychologists have to really make a fine case of like, we can't treat this person right now. Like, and then I think that there has to be a lot of candor on the psychological mm -hmm. community of like the, like, and I, I have spoken to some psychologists who think that narcissistic personality disorder at our, pre and this is, this is going to put a little goosebumps on you, man. Like it's kind of startling. They actually believe that narcissistic personality disorder cannot be treated in, in most cases it's more of a benign effect. Like they're just really selfish mm -hmm. and like looking at themselves in the mirror and, you know, being cutthroat at work and they don't actually go on and commit murder or any of these like horrendous things. Uh, but there are psychological conditions, which at this present day reality, maybe gene therapy and all sorts of other stuff. And that, that opens up a whole can of worms because, um, that, you know, we could argue, is that person becoming better? Or are we just giving them like a lobotomy so that they become right. better? And then that's, that's also kind of a slippery slope. I think that the psych, the psychology, the psychological community needs to be completely honest and, and have a, a rigorous metric of like, we have tried and this person is incapable of experiencing remorse. And then it becomes a question of like, one thing I'm thinking here is, do you think that if someone has, like, if, if it, like, because the capital punishment issue, first off, I'm of the opinion that life in prison is worth, worse than the death penalty. Because once you have that, that life in prison, you've already removed the rehab element from the whole equation. It's completely gone now. Like there's no, there's no, there's no like vocational skills because it's like, why the hell am I going to better myself? Why am I going to learn any skills? I'm going to be in this place forever. Right. So it's, it's right off the bat when you give out a life sentence, the assumption being that there is no rehab in this sentence at all. It's completely mm -hmm. on the retribution end of the stick here. And maybe even on the preventative end of the stick, because we just, you're so darn dangerous. We can't let you go back out on the streets. I'm wondering, do we have a frank conversation with the prisoners and say, listen, man, you're going to be spending the rest of your life in here. Totally cool with us. Do you want us to put you out of your misery? Like we, we can make this an option for you. If you don't, if you, if you are unable to find meaning w w within this imprisonment, then we can do the merciful thing for you. So we're kind of giving them, we're letting them being the executioner and letting them decide, which might be a, a more humane route to, to go about this. Cause then they are ultimately the deciders of, of, of what their fate is. Um, there's that route. I, I think that there, there. I, I think as a society, we might have to come to terms that there is, there is a class, a small class, but a class of human being that will never be fit to walk down the streets of society. And I, this is an ugly, it's an ugly truth, but I don't see any other way around it. I really, mm -hmm. I really, I really don't have a solution of how you could have a perpetually dangerous person walking around and then they they can't help themselves 
as a result of, of some kind of uh, psychological problem. Yeah, and that's the hard part, um, especially. I mean, I, the idea that you're proposing is very interesting where we give the, where we give the, uh, what do you call it, the decision-making to the perpetrators and like, look, this is the sentence. We're giving, we're, you know, in a sense, we're giving them a form of freedom because at the heart of it, sort of like the prison industrial complex, basically like leveling, basically taking away a specific freedom from the perpetrator or from this, from an individual, if we're going to reduce it down to this most basic level. But in that case, we're giving the perpetrator a sense of freedom, maybe as minute as it is, whether or not to make the choice of to, okay, do you want to spend life in here and, you know, do the usual or, or do you want the other way out where we it's mo I think at most, I think most places, um, capital punishment at this point are lethal injections. I can't think of anywhere that's really as, I guess, quote unquote, archaic or barbaric as the, as the electric chair or something like that. Because but it's, I, I mean, I, oh, I might be inclined to, to go with the lethal injection because yes, it, it's going to be painful, but that pain is for like a few seconds and then I'm gone. That's it. You know, like it sucks that I, you know, they said that when people uh, were sentenced to the guillotine, their head would survive in the basket for five seconds. I don't, I, you know, I don't know if that's even true. That's a more of a, an urban tale, but I'm like, okay, five seconds of pain or the next 40 years of like counting the tiles in a cell when, yeah. you really, when you really think about it, like that five seconds of pain doesn't feel all that bad compared to like, you know, no human interaction, really, really alone in your thoughts day in and day out and day in and day out that that almost has like a certain degree of inhumanity. And you've now removed the most component element to suffering. And that's hope. I think that if I am ever going to become a better person, if I'm ever going to rehabilitate, there has to be an element of hope in the sense that I will get out of here and I will be in a better situation than I currently am in. When right. you give somebody life imprisonment, you now have removed the element of hope. And even if they are straight up sociopath or psychopath, you remove hope from somebody and now they they have nothing to lose at that point. They could literally kill a security guard and nothing is changing. Like absolutely nothing in their situation is going to change. They still have the same life sentence. Right. Yeah. And it's, the, that's the, I feel like that's part of the biggest difficulty with this topic, life in prison versus capital punishment. It was just like the, because if we leave them, let's say someone who's highly, um, I guess you could say, who lacks you know, who lacks empathy or any feeling to um, any human being and just their perspective is just so their perspective is so warped that they just view other human beings as just something to, I guess, in this case, like if we're going to use murder as our popular example is to like just to kill an individual and we kill the security guard or it's just going to be repeated offense in that sense, like cognitively, there's probably something wrong. As you said, it's where, you know, there are psychologists who you said who say that narcissistic personality personality disorder is just untreatable there are just some things that just are untreatable and that's a, i think a lot of people just don't want to come to terms with that um we want to believe that you know there is some kind of hope for these people there is some kind of um I guess you could say way out, light at the end of the tunnel. Do you think maybe maybe just one thought I'm thinking in my head here? 
Do you think that we could ever come to, and we're not, obviously we don't have the technology now. Do you think we could ever evolve to a surveillance and this like state that even if you are a sociopath or a psychopath, the, the state is at such a high level of surveillance that it's going to become next to impossible to commit murder or so. now again that we're, we're we're thinking you know hundreds of years now in the future i'm wondering if that's the only way to kind of deal with these individuals in, in somewhat of a humane manner mm. is if it comes to the point where it's like yeah you, you, we can't fix you you're 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 you know corrupt to the bone Thankfully, we live in such a state that you'll never even have the opportunity to kill a security guard. Um, but here, here's a television. Here's, here's a, here's a specific designated area of isolation that you can walk mm -hmm. around with. And here are a bunch of, here's a security camera on every block. And you know, in that case, it's sad because in that in that model, it assumes that that particular individual has no free will. Like the sociopath yeah. has no, like free will is completely gone from that scenario. And that the only way that they can be, it's kind of like a tiger when you really think about it, because we actually don't ever assume that the tiger will develop the free will to not eat us. Like we like, unless you're like the tiger yeah. king or something like that, like <laughs> for, 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 for the most part, we put tigers in cages, right? When you go to the zoo, the tiger is in a cage or behind you know, strong layers of plexiglass or whatever it is, because we assume at the same level that the, the tiger does not have free will. If it's hungry enough, it will eat you. And perhaps there are some human beings that are just tigers inside, where it's like you have no free will. And thus, the only way that we can deal with you as a person is in a constant state of surveillance. That constant state of surveillance is an interesting thing, because that was actually developed by a utilitarian um, back in the day by Jeremy Bentham, who sort of created this model, this prison model of the panopticon yeah. or this panopticism where you're just, where the prisoners are constantly being monitored, but you're not, you don't see the, mon you don't see the person who's monitoring you, but you're perpetually, you're like constantly aware that you are monitored. So every move, every step, like every action is just being watched. And it, it strips, it does, you're, you are like, right, it does strip you of that free will. And I think it's the having, trying to get a concrete answer is difficult because we have so many, there's so many, uh, what do you call it? Factors, if we're gonna use a mathematical terminology, like if, if there's so many factors in the equation that like every direction we go, there's gonna be some kind of problem that inserts itself. And it's just like, well, what about this? And it's like, well, and then we try to go the other route and it's like, well, what about this? It's a, specifically speaking, especially with those who are, I guess you could say labeled and deemed as untreatable, uncurable, uh, I, I guess you could say in, another word will be irredeemable it's um it's kind of it's kind of hard especially when you have because there's going to be people who say and there's definitely people out there who say it's like well who is man another man to hand that you know hand that scarlet letter to that individual who is you know whether they're appointed judge or they're you know, their, uh, what do you call it, their job status as a state, um, as a state government employee or federal government employee. It's, it, it's a lot of, um, what do you call it, 
the water has definitely like it gets the more you try it's almost like the more you try to like clear it out and try to find a definite a definitive answer there's always someone like sitting at this side pouring in more dirt <laughs> like nope nope like you've got this problem or you've got this problem yeah yeah the life life is complicated like this um this 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 last part of our conversation actually reminds me of one of my first podcasts, I think it was like the, uh, in the, in def, I think it was like one of the, t- the first 10 episodes I did. I actually discussed with a gentleman by the name of Dave, uh, Steven Pinker's book, like are human beings becoming better. And based on our discussion right now, you know, people say, Oh, murder rate is down, you know, where it's a more peaceful and loving time than it ever has been. But just listening to our conversation, I'm like, great murders down. But is murder down because there's just more cell phones and surveillance cameras than there ever has been? Maybe, maybe we've just been kidding ourselves all along. Like maybe the only reason our murder rate is down, the only reason that we have the illusion of peace amongst us is because we have, you know, nuclear warheads kind of aimed at each Mm -hmm. other's throat. And I guess, I, I guess, I guess the sad reality of it, Luke, is technology will change but our human nature is never ever going to change. I don't. I don't think we're ever going to, from a moral perspective, actually get all that. And this is so bleak, man. I, I hate saying this, man, but it doesn't. It seems like if all of, I, I have a, I almost feel, and I want to be wrong about this, but I'm almost inclined to say that if all of the surveillance cameras and all the like smartphones disappear tomorrow, that murder rate would, would just escalate once more because now, now all of the checks, the, the checks and the, um, the, the checks on criminal enterprise and behavior are now gone. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an, it's an interesting thought, especially, you know, it's like, like murder rate or crime rate is down because of, um, because of technology or it could be because of certain movements towards uh, society like instead of I mean hearkening back to our conversation about with the whole rehabilitation process I was kind of think sitting there thinking like it almost sounds like we're turning we're moving away from the prison like industrial model into like as I think you mentioned like a liberal arts college or it <laughs> almost sounds like a um, what is it uh, a boarding school <laughs> almost well, you know what? I, I think we actually have, if you're willing to come back on the show, I think another topic that we could do is maybe a good topic we could discuss is does knowledge make us more moral creatures? I think I think if we can solve that question, we might actually get more answers. Uh, Luke, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, glad. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you for having me again. This concludes the 81st episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.